Welcome to the Chill with Phil weekly podcast. Everything about e-commerce, digital marketing, growth hacking, strategies, and more. If you're passionate about these topics, you will definitely want to hang out with us the next hour. Now, here's your host, Phil Kiprianu. Hey guys, this is Phil for Chill with Phil podcast. And today we are with Jordan Gall from Cart Hook. And um, I'm super pleased to have you because we've been talking like for a, a long time together. Yeah. And I think I was one of the first probably beta tester on your platform back then. I think that was like in 2015 or 16. That's been a long time since then. It's been, yeah, been a few years and yeah, you were really early on in testing things out and that feels like several lifetimes ago, but that's how it goes. I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, with, um, as, as an entrepreneur, basically it's always with all this new stuff coming in, it feels like things are going so fast and you forget about the early days or the early beginnings, you know, and how things went through and now where you are at and, um, but You know, why not starting by talking uh, to us about, you know, where you, where did you start in your entrepreneur journey? Uh, because I don't think everything started with Cartwood. There has been like other stuff before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's been a bunch, you know, some some I'd like to forget about. But yeah, let's let's take it back there a little bit. And first, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited for this podcast and, you know, just the, the chill with Phil approach and just being able to talk. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's my, my favorite type of, of thing. Um, yeah, no all right. Boundaries. So let's, let's, there's no boundaries here. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're, we're just talking. Yeah, um, which you know when you asked me if I want to be on, I was like, all right, like what do I need to prepare? What's the topic? And like what should we talk about? And you're like, no, man, <laughs> it's cultural with Phil for a reason. We're just we're just gonna talk. There we go. <laughs> yes, so that's that that's good. So I, I was looking forward to 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 being able to do so. All right, so my entrepreneur journey does not start with me. It starts with my parents. Uh, which is the case for many immigrants. Uh, so my parents, I was born in Israel uh, and my parents were first generation Israeli. My, my mother's from Morocco. My dad's from Poland. And, you know, in the in the middle of the 20th century, there's a lot of movement, especially in Jewish communities. So people moved around the world and, and Israel was the safe harbor. And that's where they, they ended up. Um, so. I was born in Israel and I was there till I was age six when my parents brought us over. So that's, that's the start. That's the truth is that's where it starts. Um, my dad came over here and worked for himself. So I grew up in an immigrant entrepreneur household and that does something to you. It, it makes you very aware of the realities of entrepreneurship, about the opportunities, about the risks, about, you know, living, living close to the metal. Uh, there, there isn't much fluff. There isn't much safety. There isn't much security. And you, you kind of, you know, for better and worse, you, you grow up with that mindset. Um, And that's, that's where it all started for me. So I started working for my dad uh, back in the day, like in high school. And, you know, I understood our family's finances when I was like 15 years old. And I, I don't think that's a normal thing. Uh, the truth is, I don't really think that's necessarily a good thing. Um, my peers had no idea about finances in, again, for better and worse. Um, 
but I grew I grew up with it all around me and thinking through these things and cash flow, you know, and, and, and here's what we can do this month and here's why we need to tighten that month and because this thing's coming in three months later and we're marketing now so that we get paid back eight months later and, you know, I, I had those things kind of in my DNA from, from that age. So the truth is, I should have known <laughs> I was going to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to be one, but I got, I got caught up in college. I went to, I went to university of Michigan. I went to the business school there undergrad and I got, you know, I grew up as one of these kids where you just kind of look around at what other people are doing uh, and you try to compete based on that. And you say, okay, this is my peer group and I want to be, you know, I want to be the best. So I want to do well in my peer group. And so when I went to Michigan, my peer group was a bunch of people who want to get into finance. Um, and so that's what I saw as high achievement. That's what I saw as the goal. And so I started going in that direction. I ended up in investment banking my first year of college. And that hit me in the face like a two by four. That was what in the world did I get myself into? You know, what I was doing is I was seeking status. I was seeking what I thought was the best thing and what would impress people and would make me feel good about myself and would be a lot of money and all those things. And that was a miserable, miserable experience. Um, and I should have known that. And that was, that was like the first really painful but very important lesson that I got as the very first job at a college was, okay, I have walked all the way up to the line that says, if you give me your life, I will give you a lot of money. And I have seen what that looks like and feels like, and I have decided that that's not for me. So, right, that kind of has stuck with me the entire time. The, the truth is I'm arrogant enough to want both. I want the amazing life and all the money, which is a different story. <laughs> but, but that taught me, okay, I'm not willing to do that version of things. The 80 hour, the status, that whole climb the ladder. I'm not willing to do that just for money. So, okay, I, I kind of saw one limit on my personality and what I'm willing to accept. And then that, that's kind of what drove me back toward, well, what was I thinking? Obviously, I want to be an entrepreneur. Anyway, what, what in the world was I, what was I thinking? And it's kind of sobered me up. And ever since then, I've been doing my, my own thing. So you were driven basically by, um, by a bit like the fame or what was, will bring you, you thought as a, as higher value for yourself, but at the end, it was not really grounded like you thought it would probably be at, at first. Yeah, it wasn't looking. Some people love that job and that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that, with finance. It's, it's a great career. It's just not for me. And so what it, right, what it made me feel like, okay, I need to, I need to figure out what is right for me and what I want. And, you know, th th my 20s, I have an enormous amount of regret around my 20s and what I did in my career because it, it made things a lot harder. And I, I made several mistakes, right? So the next, I, right, investment banking mistake, I immediately leapt to the next mistake. <laughs> and that was that was joining my family business. Mm. And, and it's tough to call it a mistake, really. But looking back, I probably shouldn't have done it. And so my, my dad had this really interesting business going, the one I grew up with in high school. It was property tax reduction, okay? So what we did is we represent residential homeowners to challenge their property taxes. Mm. So property taxes are based on the amount of... Uh, 
the amount of money that the that the town says your house is worth. So what you can do is you can challenge that. You can say, no, my house isn't worth 500 grand. It's worth 400 grand. Therefore, I should pay less taxes. And if you are successful in reducing that assessment and you lower the taxes by call it 3,000 bucks, then we'll ask you for 1,500 of it for the first year, right? So it's like this great pitch. It's, you, it's, a, it's a no-lose pitch. So what it turned into was a direct mail business, which is so much fun, <laughs> right? It's, it's copywriting and testing and like creativity and like what claims can you make? What, what your competitor's doing? What color paper? Like all this tweaking, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So we would send like a good half a million pieces of mail and people sign the bottom and rip it out. To this day, it's still the same. We've tried online, never works the same. You rip the contract, you put it back in the envelope and you send it back and now all of a sudden that person is your customer. You are now the representative. So it's this like cool, interesting business <laughs> that we, we took from like a million to like several million. It was, it was a cool experience. But I didn't learn what it means to run a company. You know, when you run a family business, you are, you are sheltered from a lot of realities. And we had a little bit of the classic uh, small business curse where we did everything ourselves. And it was just efficient enough of a business that you could do that and still make a few million bucks. And that teaches you like, oh, you don't really need to hire people. But then you never build an organization and then you are always doing the work and then you get, you, you reach your limits. And, and so like, it's a circle. It's a vicious circle at the end. It, it, that's right. That's right. It's like the E Myth classic. Yeah. You know, someone starts their hobby, and then you you realize, oh wow, I, I need to run a business, not 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 a hobby. Sure. So look, it was a few years. I got to spend every day with my dad, and then my brothers joined, and it was it was phenomenal. So that version of things is not a mistake. But looking back, if I wanted to run companies in my career, that was not the right thing to do in terms of what I should have done. So I should have joined a 20-person company and seen what it's really like, what mistakes are made, what mistakes are made unintentionally, what people are like in that environment, what it's like to create a good environment to work in, what people really care about, not just money, what they care about fulfillment and happiness. And I just... I just didn't do any of that education. I was just arrogant enough to go from that to just like, oh, I can do this other thing I'm on my own, my family, and then and then after that I can go run my own company after that. You feel because you you went through that, you feel like you have like so much confidence and you can do everything in the world, but the reality is going to catch you up at a certain point. Yes. <laughs> and it, it it did it did catch up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, what should we do? Should we keep going from there? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Go on from there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then I, then I, I, I took uh, some of the money that I made there and I said, all right, it's time. I got to go out on my own. And then I immediately went into my next mistake, <laughs> like even, even worse than the others. So my mistake, again, this is it's tough. It's tough to admit this stuff. It's just, it's just the truth though. And it's better to hear the truth because it's better for me and for people listening. Yeah. So what I did was I started a, an advertising based online business. It was, it was around politics. It was right around the 2002 election, right after September 11th. It was, it was, you know, politics was hot, man. There was a lot going on and I, I thought it was an opportunity and I was also interested in politics overall. And I started a website and 
I immediately went towards status again. I went toward raising money and I went toward the advertising model and I went toward eyeballs and attention and it was a gigantic mistake and a failure. About a year in, we met with a well-known entrepreneur that someone in our family network knew and so gave us the opportunity to like sit down at, at lunch with him. And he was, man, is like the best meeting of my life. We're, we're a year into this thing and we're like, look, we got like from 10,000 visitors a month to 20,000 to 50,000 to 100,000. Like now we're going to raise money. We're going to sell based on $8 CPMs. We're going to make all this money. He sat down and absolutely creamed us, man. <laughs> he was, you got no IP. You got no differentiator. You guys have never been in the advertising business. You don't know what you're doing. This assumption's wrong. And my younger brother and I, who were running the business together, we left that meeting. We looked at each other. We're like, yo, it's, it's time to shut it down. <laughs> it was... You know, it was inarguably accurate. It just dispelled all of these myths. And I had been listening to, man, this is like, this is so old school. <laughs> I listened to a, a podcast called Venture Voice. And Greg, the 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 host, man, it was excellent. The po It was so old school. It was like, I got to be on my laptop, download the episode, upload it into my iPod, then get in the car, plug it into like the cassette thing or like, you know, that, that version of things. And you're like guessing which track is which, cause you can't see anything cause there's no screen. But I, I was super into the podcast back then. So this, this podcast had these amazing entrepreneurs and all they talked about was raising money and that's how you do it. So I was like, Oh, that's how you, that's how you do entrepreneurship. Uh, to total mistake. <laughs> so now, 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 okay, now the mistakes start to end and I, I get it, I get to something better. So while my younger brother and I are running this business, my older brother, the more level headed, the more risk averse of us, uh, he starts an e-commerce business, right? So what he does is he looks at Hay Needle, which eventually became a, uh, a, uh, not Wayfair, Wayfair, CSN, CSN stores became Wayfair okay. and Hayneedle. Oh, it was net shops that then became Hayneedle. Something like that. I see. Okay. That's like these old, big, that's these big super giant. old school. <laughs> it is old school. So, so the way Hayneedle, the way Wayfair, those two companies started was it was an SEO play. And what they did was they built very, very niche online stores for very, very niche categories. And the concept was you are more likely to buy a garden gnome and spend more money on garden gnomes at gardennomes.com than you are on the one category page inside of walmart.com that has three options of garden gnomes. True. And, I, and I'm using garden gnomes as an example on purpose because gardennomes.com was one of their first big hits. Oh. They're like, oh, if we can do a million dollars a year on gardennomes.com, maybe this niche is like this niche version of things is for real. So Haiti CSN sensors at some point they were operating like 400 individual stores and they had built the technology in the back to run all of it through one system. But to the shopper, you would go to hammocks.com and have an amazing assortment of hammocks and accessories. And in the age of Google AdWords being efficient, man, you could, you just print money. You just, you would spend a dollar and get $5 in revenue all day. So my, my older brother saw this and was like, all right, I'm going to copy these guys, but I'm going to go spy on where they're spending the most money. And then I'm going to go you know, make clones of those sites and sell the same products and get in touch and do drop shipping. 
cool. So when when my younger brother and I shut down the business, we go over to my older brother and he was starting to get a little bored. He was like he had like birdcages.com and a few other ones, but it wasn't really going that well and he was he was bored, he was just by himself. So we're like, "Yo, can we can we can we join you?" <laughs> Please, we we have just epically failed here and burned a bunch of money. Can we join your very sensible business that actually makes money? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and that's how I got started e-com. <laughs> <laughs> that's great there you go just dispel any myth of like jordan the smart e-commerce wizard <laughs> yeah um so that was fun we went we were on yahoo stores wow total disaster and as soon as i got there i was i was more technically minded and i was like yo we need we need a store we need an online platform that we can actually make changes and do it easily and change the design so we went on to volusion which back then was solid i have no idea what it's like now um and we we started we moved everything from yahoo stores to volusion and then we went to work learning about conversion optimization and learning about adwords and the, you know, the first month was like 800 bucks then the next month was 1500 and then it was 3000 and then 10 and then 30 and then 50 and then 80 and it was like ooh this is this is fun so that's that's how i learned e-commerce because we right three brothers one in charge of getting traffic one in charge of converting it and one of char- charge of servicing the customers. That's amazing. It was awesome. Yeah, it was, we sat, <laughs> yes. We sat in my apartment in Brooklyn with my dog in like the second bedroom and we're making money. And it was like, it was extremely exciting. When, when was that in, you know, in 2000, six 2006 wow okay. yes yeah like like that like 2007 maybe i i, <laughs> I think so i think yeah i think like 2007 so i remember this experience um as we were learning about conversion optimization we were like how do we accelerate our learning we hired site tuners you know tim ash He's still around. Okay. He's like a wizard. He wrote like a book on conversion optimization. I got the book. I couldn't understand a single page. <laughs> All these formulas. And I was like, yo, this this ain't it. This book is not going to do it. So we got in touch with them and they were like, we can offer you a one hour consultation for $500. We were like, what? <laughs> 500 bucks for an hour? So I convinced my brothers, my like, guys, we need to do this. We need to learn this. That hour changed everything, man. It taught us the fundamentals of conversion optimization and the way to look at a page and to do the 10 foot test, right? Walk 10 feet away from your screen. If you don't know what to click from 10 feet away, it's not a big enough CTA. It's not clear enough. All these principles that last the right they haven't changed the principles the, fa- the fundamentals the same thing no difference so we took that and we implemented and that's when things really started taking off then we understood okay these are our best-selling products let's go to the manufacturer let's start to get our own inventory let's start to get more margin and we just learned the game and and then about 12 months in we I, I asked the uh, I asked my brother okay let's let's do some math like wh- where are we going here like okay cool you know we're at a million dollar a year run rate after 12 months that's awesome we should be happy about that especially back then no Facebook no yeah. Instagram no social nothing so we start doing the math and the math does not look good <laughs> the, look the mar- margins aren't great you're drop shipping yeah. you're keeping some inventory then your cash flow is tricky like all this stuff mm-hmm. and 
so we look at it like, all right, if we want to make real dough, we got to grow this thing into a monster. <laughs> and we were looking, you know, one of the issues we had was that our best selling products were solar lights. Okay, so they're from China, questionable uh, uh, quality, yeah. electronic, a lot, lot of customer service, a lot of returns. Mm. So we, we were feeling a lot of pain that went side by side with success. Yeah. Sales go up, pain goes up. Yeah. And whenever you do that, right, that's a lesson I still have in Cardhook. I always want to separate success from pain, right? It. When I think of it in, in, in terms of card hook, it's if this person's successful at selling, don't then make that same person service the new customers because then they're punished for their success. Uh, not, not, not punished as in it's, it's punishment to service customers. It's just that you're telling them this is your job to sell. And the more success you have doing that job, the less good of a job you can do because you're also servicing the customers, right? This is true. Consultants get into this, this feast famine version of things also. So we had a lot of pain and when we looked at the numbers, we're like, okay, so if we want to get this thing to like $10 million a year, so we can actually start to make some real money, that is an unpalatable amount of pain. And so it turned, it turned us off from it. And we said to ourselves, you know what, maybe we sell this thing. So I said, all right, I'll look into it. I contacted a broker. One week later, we had a buyer. We were like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe we're selling our business now. Um, the funny thing was we found the buyer. We said, okay, you know what? It makes sense. We learned a lot. This is cool. In an Amazon world where you can get the same thing from us as you can from Amazon or 25 other stores online, that's not really going to work out. We either need to create our own brands, which people are learning now. They understand now. Or we need to make this thing huge. Making a huge sounded like too much pain. Building our own brand sounded like too much investment. Again, none of the infrastructure that there is today to build up build up a brand. So we said, all right, let's sell. The funny th- thing was, once we got a commitment to sell, the, right, right, for somebody to acquire the company, we went, it, it took about 30 days to do the transaction, some legal stuff and due diligence and so on. In that 30 days, we were like, yo, we're selling this thing. We don't want any more pain. We don't want customer service. We had been thinking about outsourcing customer service for a while. And that gave us the impetus like, yeah, let's just, let's just outsource it, right? It's not, it's not us anymore. We're going to sell it. And just nothing changed. And we felt so stupid. All this pain that we were inflicting on ourselves, right? We hadn't learned the lesson from my family business. We were still doing the work. We were servicing. And then we outsourced it. We're like, man, there isn't nearly the same level of pain that we expected. (laughs) A new level of pain. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Yep. But we were so deep in, we're like, all right, another lesson learned and let's, let's sell the thing. Yep. So that's, that was how I, you know, built and sold my first company. Wow. But that's <laughs> yep. interesting because you, at that time, you found out also that there was interest in terms of buying that kind of business, which was not very hyped at the moment. Like today, you know, if we compare that, that everyone, I mean, it's a buyer's market right now. People are looking to buy that kind of stuff because, first of all, they don't have the means and the um, the understanding of how it takes to build, you know, online business. So the big one are looking for that to fasten, you know, their um, mm-hmm. their uh, their their pace in the race, but. 
but at that time it was totally different because everyone was okay we're gonna we're gonna put our toes in we're gonna try out we're gonna see if that works it was like much more like a distraction or fun thing or cool thing or oh we're a bit in advance in the market but there was no hype or anything like that but by finding a buyer at that point what what that brought you in terms of uh, what did you see you know except that the fact you could just get out of that and probably release the pain yeah it was it was several lessons right you you always have more options than you think you have right if you take a step back you realize you ha you always have more options than you really think um that was a good lesson going through it wasn't that big of a sale right it was a few hundred k it wasn't anything crazy so it didn't make sense to go hire a lawyer and spend 30 or 40 thousand dollars on legal fees so I, I did the lawyering myself i had a lawyer who was helping kind of finalize but the negotiation i did sure. and i turns out i really liked doing that so that, that was another lesson like oh who, who knew that this negotiation over legal language I actually enjoy? That's not something I expected. So that's like, some, you know, that's a quiver I have in my, uh, an arrow I have in my quiver. Like, okay, I, I have no problem getting down into, into legal. I, I kind of look forward to it. And there's, a, there's something I tell people that work uh, at our company, uh, the other executives in the company, the other leadership. Uh, I, tell, I tell to other entrepreneurs also, right, there is a... There are two worlds in entrepreneurship. Uh. There's the world that we inhabit 99% of the time, what we're talking about right now, selling and demos and free trials and sales and all that stuff. And then there is that 1% world on what it says in the legal docs. Uh -huh. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to what it says in the legal docs. True. So you, you could do all this up here, but when it's time to sell your company, when it's time to you, you know settle a dispute with your partner, like... It, it comes down to the words it says on paper. So it's like, do, do not ignore that. Just because you never deal with it on a regular basis doesn't mean you should ignore it. Yeah, yes. that's true. That's totally true. <laughs> yep, yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I sell that business and I'm into e-commerce. So what do I do? Start Cardhook. No, I, I took a little hiatus. I, I did some other stuff. I looked into an Israeli company that was developing an aquaculture technology to raise saltwater fish on land. You know, I, I kind of explored around. Um, but then I, I came back to e-commerce. Uh, and I was in a position where I don't know software. I had never run a software company. I don't know how to develop software. I'm just someone who has some e-commerce experience. And I had to go through the process of convincing a talented engineer to spend their time building a product that I had in mind. And that was an interesting challenge, but you know, through luck and perseverance, that sort of thing, it, I found the right person. And that's who built the first version of Carthook, which was an abandoned cart application that sent yeah. emails to abandoned carts. Yeah, I remember that part. That was the early days. That's right, that's V1. <laughs> that's V1, and, and especially that was great because again, you know, if we're taking that back, then we, today we put a lot of importance in terms of email sequence, Ben and Cart, and all this kind of thing, and now even like SMS is getting like so big. That's but, right. I mean, it was already there back then, but the hype was not there, and people didn't um, take time to, uh, to put attention to that, but it was already part of the important strategy 
And that was this something that you figure out when you came with your first, like, let's say V1, you, you, you get in and you, you were looking like for what would bring the most value to the client if I put a software right now on the market? What was the approach? Yeah, the approach was, let's look back at literally our expenses back when we ran our e-commerce company. Mm. And we looked back at them and what I was looking for was which ones are no-brainers. Right, so Google AdWords, kind of a no-brainer. Don't spend on AdWords, don't have a business. Yeah. So that that's an example of a no-brainer. Um, and what I found was that the abandoned cart app that we were using was not just a no-brainer, but it was also terrible software. Mm. It was terrible, but it kept making us three grand a month. So why would I stop paying it $79 a month? Mm -hmm. So that's when I said, huh, that's kind of a interesting place to be. Even if your product sucks, you can still get someone to say, I'm never taking this thing off. It keeps making me money. So what would happen if I actually built a better version of that? Then all of a sudden I'm in a good spot. Maybe I could charge more. Maybe people will stick around for a long time. Maybe I could sell them easily. So that's, that's where I hit onto the abandoned card app. And so, yeah, that's that's what I set out to create, a better version of the abandoned card app that we used on our Volusion store so that people actually liked it instead of didn't like it and kept paying. You know, if they liked it, then they'll definitely keep paying. So, and what I really liked about it is that it made people money, which I like selling that more than other things, more than saving you time or being more efficient or communicating better. I'd really like to sell you the ability to make more money. Mm -hmm. That's so that's and, and you can see that now with our with our post purchase upsell app. Right? We are what we are selling and we sell it for a premium and we get yelled at for charging 500 bucks a month for it. But it's on purpose because if you make you know, we have people that make $300,000 a month in upsells. <laughs> so I don't really have any problem charging them three grand. I, why, why would I have a problem? Mm. So that's, I, I like selling revenue. And so that, I guess that, that DNA goes all the way back to the uh, abandoned card app, which was based on how much, re how much revenue do you recover? Exactly. And that was, uh, and again, in the time, when was, when you released that first version of Cardhook? In, in 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 which year? That was five years ago. So yeah, 2015. I think it was actually 2014. I incorporated January of 2015. And you, you where um, where that app was available at that time? Just on Volusion. Just on Volusion. And 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 Sully from Bontech Golf, who you may know. Sully's a character. He's awesome. Sully was our number one customer, our first customer wow. in the abandoned card app ever. The first person that ever gave the company money as a customer uh, was Sully, which is fantastic because he's still a customer of Cardhook now. That's crazy. Um, yeah, he was on Volusion. So we were on Volusion and then we expanded to other platforms. And then everyone kept asking us, when are you going to do Shopify? When we do Shopify integration, when are you going to do Shopify? When are you going to do Shopify? And we just ignored it. We were like, well, we don't want to do Shopify because Shopify doesn't let us put JavaScript on the checkout page. Mm. And, and back then, the thing that differentiated us was we'll capture email as soon as it's typed in the field. And other apps weren't doing that. No. So we said, why would we go to Shopify when they don't let us put the job? We lose our magic. We have to go through the API like everybody else, which is the same reason why a lot of abandoned car apps we're, we're charging nine bucks, 19 bucks, 29 bucks a month. And we were charging 100, 250, 500. So we kept saying no. And eventually 
we, the demand was like was strong enough that we said, okay, fine, we need to, we need to go to Shopify. Yeah. So we went. Yeah, we went to Shopify and we kind of got lost uh, in the in the competitive landscape. And we weren't the cheapest and we weren't the best. And the market started to get commoditized and it started to get turned into a feature inside of larger email marketing offerings. And and I didn't I didn't like where things were going, which which is why we came out with with the upsell product, because we saw what was happening on ClickFunnels and people were freaking out over ClickFunnels, but they didn't like ClickFunnels back end. And everyone wanted to use Shopify as the core for their e-commerce company. And then they were going off and running traffic through uh, ClickFunnels because that allowed them to do the marketing strategies around upsells and upsells to subscriptions and all this other stuff. So that's when it dawned on us, ooh, if we built what is effectively kind of like a ClickFunnels for Shopify and it allowed people to continue selling the way they want to sell through funnels, through upsells, but all the orders went back into their Shopify system, I bet that would work. And so we we put the gamble in and we said, all right, this little four person team, we're going to build a second product, which was which was, you know, just gambling the whole thing. If it didn't work out, then the company wouldn't wouldn't work out. That's 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 totally amazing, because I mean, basically, I remember that time because there was a real hype. Every every marketer now was back then was ta- starting to sell you know physical products because when right. ClickFunnel was uh, started it was much more on digital products and someone figure out okay now we can do especially with the free plus shipping like every that app it's that blew every, people's minds exactly right yeah where really yes. that, that, at that point everything started to happen. And um, they were because of the free plus shipping. People wanted like to be able to uh, get more money out of the upsell, and it was not really possible to do it on Shopify. And there was also a hype around Shopify because it's very easy and all this kind of thing. So, so people yeah. were jumping from one platform to another, and that was really painful at that time. Yep. And I think, I mean, uh, I, I mean that for my own perspective, that when you came in, you came right on the perfect timing because there was really nobody. People were talking about solutions, but nobody had something that was strong enough back then, you yeah. know? Yeah. And we, we built it and we're just watching all of the talk. And I just said, you know, should we talk about it? Should we get some hype? Should we do pre-sales? And I was like, nope, we're just going to shut up and we're going to put this thing on the market. And then as soon as it hit the market, we were boom, we just got overwhelmed. <laughs> Now, I would love to tell you that it was a rocket ship from day one and that it was very strong demand worked out beautifully, but oh my God. Goodness, it did, it, that is not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> We, oh my, the most painful year of my career was after launching Cardhook, the 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 upsell product. I, I, I it remember was, that time. <laughs> oh my God, Phil, I can't even, it's traumatic. I think that's why I go to therapy today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding at all. That was so wild of an experience. Here, here's this whole career of look. I've made a few mistakes. I've did a few good things. Things, some things worked out. Some things didn't. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm leaving out like 18 different businesses. <laughs> you know, in between all that, just like all of us have in our in our graveyard of failures. But here it was. I finally nailed it. I got the right thing at the right time in the right market. Yeah. And like now, give me all the rewards, baby. Here we go. And what I did not understand at that time is that software is its 
own thing, man. It is a living, breathing organism. And even if you understand what's wrong with it, you need to nurse that thing to health. And it takes so long. So the first year, we, we did $100 million in processing the first wow. year. Right, wild, wild. And it was it was so bad. It was, we had, I call it a conveyor belt of torture. That's how, that's how I explain it. People would come in and I, I'd never gotten a reaction like this to anything, anything I did. I would do a demo with someone and they would be like, Jordan, I cannot believe you guys built this. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. People were asking me to invest. They were like, they, they could not believe it. Yeah. And then they would come in and they'd become a user and they'd be so happy. They would be in, we, we were in love. We would fall in love through a half an hour demo. Thank you so much for the support. I can't believe it. Oh my God. And then they, we would put them on a conveyor belt and we would chop them up into little tiny bits until a few weeks later they would come out and they would say, Jordan, I, I can't do it anymore. I've, I, I've had enough. I, nothing works. Everything's a disaster. Yes, I'm processing some. Yes, I'm making more money, but, but, but I can't run my business like this and I have to cancel. Mm. And it was like that for a year. Whoa. I was watching 50K in MRR come in every month and then all of it leave. <laughs> just, just, it was, it was horrific, but we had, we had a good group, right? The four of us, we were committed. We were like, we are going to make this thing work. And look, it's, it's not as bad as I'm making it out to be. It didn't grow the way it should have, but we always knew we were onto the right thing because the feedback was so strong. And some people who really were building their businesses around it, they didn't care. They were like, I know it's a disaster and you guys are going to get there, mm. which is why we did the hundred million. Yeah. Right. I mean, that kind of speaks for, that's objective. It speaks for itself. A lot of traffic went through it. And then we we learned from that mistake and we 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 did version two. We rebuilt everything, yeah. knowing all these lessons, all that right, this is a checkout product. You know, anything goes wrong, you cost people money. Anything. So we rebuilt it, we launched version two, and it was definitely it was definitely stressful because if it, version two didn't work and it was still gonna be the same situation, I think people would have started leaving the company and started kind of giving up. But version two worked and our the guy who built it, our CTO now and our and, and, and our head of infrastructure now, those are the two original engineers that built it. You know, hats off to them under all that pressure. They nailed it. And then the second year we did three hundred million. We went from a million in ARR to multiple millions. And it was like, oh my God. Barely made it out of that first year live. Barely. And now, you know, now we're in year three and then last year we did 600 million and it's like, okay, okay. Now it's more stable. It's 20, 22 people now. And whew, yeah. man, it's, it, was, it was a wild ride. And I think that, like you said, I mean, the challenge was not only in one side, it was internally and externally, which is, you know, sometimes some business will have only like, like at the beginning of your e-commerce, the most of the pressure and the stress was coming like from customer support and all this kind of thing, you know, and okay, at least internally you can manage it up to a certain point. But when the pressure is going internally and externally, the stress is coming all over the place. So this it's is all over, the all over. And, I, and right. And I'm the person in charge and it all, all, it's all my responsibility <laughs> and it's all my fault. And, you know, and, and I, and here I am, I'm, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, 
what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? You, you, you know, you kind of, you're committed, you're in, like, you can't just pull the plug. You can't, you can't just get into the code yourself. You have to trust people and motivate people and yeah. communicate through it. And look, it left scars, you know, like my, my co-founder at the time is no longer at the company. He's a shareholder and a good friend, but he's no longer works full time at the company. Like we, we didn't make it out of that. You know, it, it was not without its, uh, its repercussions. Uh, but now after having gone through that like the core of the company is just so strong that we're you know we are we're gangsters man we, we've seen a lot and everything that comes up we're like we've seen worse than this there you go please <laughs> we're gonna be fine this is a little hiccup and you know no big deal so yeah i mean and and that's that's a good um you were telling at the beginning i mean that i mean it's like going to war you know and and you cannot get i mean you have to get scars i mean scars are proof that you went through a lot of things and experience and that brings you where you are now you know i think that's that's amazing i mean I, I, it's like anything you know if you never fail you don't know the other side of the story and and that basically will you will miss some part that will bring you better at a certain point you know so that's that's good and i mean that brings me to another thing because you you went through a very stressful time i remember like last year when shopify announced that they were changing also the checkout process and the api and there was like something going on i mean everyone in the industry was, didn't knew know what was because nothing was clear and um how did you overcome did you have like some sort of plan b did you have like again you know you had like to to think fast to to, to figure out things fast and you know it was not again a, a very good position at that time as well yes there have been very stressful moments uh with our relationship with shopify um I will say that they have never been malicious in any of it, right? They are an amazing platform mm -hmm. and it is their platform. Yeah. They get to do what they choose, but they don't, they don't act like bullies, right? It's not Facebook that just turns stuff off. Yeah, yeah. It says, oh. sorry about, about your cute little business. We don't care. They've never behaved that way. And so we've always been able to communicate with them and work with them in a way that keeps, the, you know, this is the biggest thing to their credit is they always keep the merchant first. Yeah. And so if it's not like this contest between us and them, it's okay, what's right for merchants? What's right for the merchants that are working with you? What's right for other merchants? How do we get through this the right way? Mm. Um, Which makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, and and that's to their credit. Now that that does not mean I didn't have a lot of stress over the past few years. I did, uh -huh. um, but I chose to walk into risky waters. Yep. You know, so uh, it's not like a surprise or anything that I really have to complain about. <clears throat> And at this point in time where we are, you know, in 2020, um, we're in a good spot. So we, we are in a good place with Shopify and we see the right path forward. And I can't talk about every detail on that front, um, but it, it's very stable. And, you know, I think it's going to work out well for merchants and for customers at, uh, and, and us at the same time. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I'll be able to talk more about all that stuff in the future. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's all heading in the, in the right direction. And it, I think the biggest thing has just been fostering the relationship and more than anything else, it's just been taking good care of merchants and our customers and doing the right thing by them because that is, that's the thing that has seen us through all of it because Shopify understands, hey, these guys do the right thing and they're working with these big merchants and they treat them the right way. And if I think if we hadn't been doing that, we would be in a very, very different 
different situation. Yeah. Ma- ma- makes total sense, and uh, and basically, uh, I think that's the the right approach. I mean, for for both sides, you know, uh, at the end, it's the. Um, the reflex come from not only the merchants but the clients at the end at the end totally and if the the clients don't 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 have a good uh customer experience it will reflect on the merchants and then will reflect on the all the other eco people that are part of the ecosystem you know that's right that's right it's really about understanding that and it's where so now i mean that you're at that point what's what we can expect uh from cardhook uh in the next let's say couple of months or or years now what's the end goal basically i don't think there is an end goal you know i i I, what we want to see um so it's there's a direct analogy to the ben card app Mm. when we first launched it uh five years ago it wasn't a, a best practice it wasn't that common of a thing and we 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 dealt with a decent amount of friction from higher quality merchants that care about their customers and are looking at lifetime value and are looking at about the brand we got a good amount of pushback around i don't know if i want to do that to my customers mm. right they didn't opt in i don't know if, i don't know if i want to do that and, and then about a year into the business that friction just went away it just became accepted as a best practice yeah right it's not about the tool it's about how it's used right email can be done the right way or it can be done the wrong way totally. it's the same thing with pop-ups it's the same thing with with all these different marketing tools sure. and so what we what we're trying to usher in is post-purchase upsells started off in the world of eh, questionable ethics let's let's call it right but it's not about it's not about the tool it's about how it's used so we want to usher in the era of post-purchase upsells as a best practice done the right way Right. You can look at it from the point of view of I'm going to get more money from this visitor or you can look at it and say, I'm going to reward this person that just bought with the best deal that they can ever get. There you go. Right. So so we want things to go from that point of view. So it's almost like we want like the classy version of post-purchase upsells. Yeah. Right. We, we want brands that care about their customers and about their brand to look at post-purchase upsells as not just an acceptable thing. But let's be straightforward about it. It's it is an opener. If you keep if you keep conversion the same and you make offers to people after they purchase, like the only result is more revenue. Yeah, it's kind of, right. If you look at that math, it's kind of straightforward. And so that's that's what we want to do. So over the next few months, over the next year, what you'll see from us is new upsell templates. A-B testing, uh, multiple products on the same page, uh, bundle functionality. Just how do we get post-purchase upsells to be a generally accepted best practice? And we want to encourage it to be done the right way, not not the wrong way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And basically, I mean, um, companies like Amazon are doing it, you know, in a way that is very smooth and you don't even... Um, you don't even force, but the, the customer seems to be easy to attract to get the one thing that is more because it fits so well with the product. You know, it's much more in that approach, under, understanding the customer's behavior than just, you know, we're going to force you. 
a 995 um, product in order bump that just doesn't fit with you but if you get it today you're gonna get like this and this and this you know <laughs> yes yeah. right the, these these things have give and take if you do that you're gonna lose on the other end yeah. right you're 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 not gonna have happy customers that love you yeah so it, it depends on the approach exactly exactly that's totally amazing uh, jordan i mean I, i'm uh, i'm super first of all flabbergasted about <laughs> your story i mean and uh, the transparency that you shared today with us i mean i think a lot of people will get probably much more confident about you know getting entrepreneur into the entrepreneur uh journey because a lot of people when they get in the first thing is they're afraid to fail and failure is part of the journey and if you don't fail and if you don't fail enough it means at a certain point that you don't learn enough and to succeed you need to learn and doesn't mean that you will not make a mistake here or there again but all of these builds you as a person as well you know and that's i think one thing that we we have to remember is we have to build ourselves first from these so we can help and share the rest of the uh, to the rest of the people that they can uh, grow as well as a good person you know i think that's the i mean that's my my vision <laughs> yeah yeah no i i i agree with you 100% the very often the things that seem most painful and most kind of uh, embarrassing or whatever th that they all kind of add up to you know where you are later on yeah it's all part it's all part of the whole thing and you know i a lot of those failures and just missteps or whatever and then some successes mixed in all this stuff um has really helped in what has been the the most unexpected best part of the company which is building a company of 20 people that like where they work and taking care of those people and then seeing people come and go someone just resigned and we're having a party for them tonight because they're moving on to a great thing yeah. right they were with the company for three years it's not it's not like this negative thing if you care about the person you're happy for them and they're looking to, into their next opportunity um so that that has really enriched the whole experience when you start to realize oh this isn't just about me this isn't just about money this is like a bigger thing and then it takes on you know new levels of, of fulfillment yeah totally uh, totally i mean uh, i heard that a lot right now you know it's about like giving back to the people you work but it's it's also um uh, in, in um human enrichment if i can call it like that you know it's humanize the whole work it's not just about money it's not just about the organization but it's about the people first you know and if you keep the people happy they have fun they enjoy you know they will put you know their their, their life and, and and everything in because they know they're part of a movement that is bigger than them you know and i think people love that yeah yeah that's good makes perfect well I, look I, i appreciate you having me on it's been fun to kind of talk about this stuff uh it's always good to just kind of pretend that no one's going to hear it it's just yeah. me and you talking right now <laughs> <laughs> but for anyone that did listen thank you and you know if you want to get in touch hit me up on twitter at jordan gall or come check out card hook if, if you're in e-commerce thank you very much for joining us today uh jordan it was amazing and talk to you very soon Guys, thank you very much. This was Phil from Chill with Phil. And we'll talk to you very soon again for another podcast. Follow us on chillwithphil.com. Ciao. You've just listened to the Chill with Phil podcast with your host, Phil Kiprianu. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play and catch our next episode.